Petersfield's Shine Radio. Hello there and welcome to Dogs With Jobs. I'm Kate Fairweather. It's great to have you with me. And I'm amazed to tell you that we are now entering our fourth year of Dogs With Jobs as a show. And what an episode it is today. It's full of information and it's the first of several episodes dedicated to conservation detection work. And it's full of unexpected insights that despite over three years of interviewing working dogs, some are new to me and I hadn't necessarily thought about before. Like the potential difficulty for a dog, any dog, even a veteran conservationist like 10-year-old Barley of projects involving wolves. Barley's searching for ocelot scat or jaguar scat. He is interested, um, but he's more interested because he gets his ball. Versus when he encounters canid scat, he can read the hormonal and chemical communication that is inherent in that scat in a way that can be really tricky. So today's episode focuses on Barley, a hugely talented 10-year-old border collie. Barley has travelled all over the US, he's been to Guatemala, and he has trained and worked on 16 separate types of plant and animal scents during his career to date. And as you'll hear, his career highlights might not even have happened yet, because this year he'll be deployed on some wildly exciting projects in Alaska and El Salvador, which connected with the PhD that his owner is studying. So my guest today, Kayla Fratt, is an ecologist, a dog behavioralist, and founder of the US-based nonprofit Canine Conservationists. She and her co-founders, Rachel and Heather, together produce a wonderful, information-stuffed fortnightly podcast, which is also called Canine Conservationists, and which I heartily recommend, and I'll put details in the show notes on how to find them. Kayla spoke to me over the holiday period from Wisconsin over Zoom. She's currently studying for her PhD at Oregon State University and, no surprise, part of her study is conservation detection dogs. She is a scholar and a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow, so it's no surprise that she's highly knowledgeable and absolutely loving her work. What is also a delight is her progressive and humane training principles, which she applies to very high drive dogs and which she's got a huge breadth of experience in. The use of conservation detection dogs is quite highly evolved in the US. And although we're focusing on barley today, we're also learning a lot about how much valuable data can be collected by dogs and how this kind of data informs a better understanding of behaviour, movement, like migration, for example, of different species. And that in turn can support the monitoring of endangered species, but also casts a light onto the effects of temperature fluctuations caused by climate change on wildlife and diversity biodiversity. And there's also a wealth of practical work that such dogs do in wind farms and those sorts of environments. So let's go back to the start and find out how Kayla and this highly talented dog, Barley, got together. So yeah, Barley, um, he is now 10 years old. He is a border collie. I adopted him when he was about three and a half years old. Um, and at the time, I was working at one of the largest animal shelters in the U.S. Um, so it's an open admission animal shelter that sees about 20,000 animals go through its doors every year. And I was on the behavior team. So my job was to work with dogs and cats that were maybe not adoptable for behavioral reasons. 
Um, So I was working as a trainer and I was looking for my first dog. I had, so I'd already been working at the shelter for like nine months. And it was like every day someone was like, how do you work at an animal shelter every day? And you don't have a dog. And I was like, I just haven't met the right one. And I, um, I knew what I was looking for. Some of my coworkers knew what I was looking for. And someone texted me who worked in intake. So it was her job to take dogs out of the kennel, out of the, um, overnight kennels or greet people as they were coming in to relinquish. And, um, yeah, so she texted me, um, from, you know, across the building and said, I think your dog just walked in the door. Um, (laughs) and I go and I meet him and he had been dropped off overnight. So this shelter had kennels where if you found a loose dog at two in the morning, you didn't have to keep it overnight. You could just drop it off. Um, or if for some reason you don't feel comfortable bringing the dog in yourself to relinquish, you can do that. Um, so he had been in this overnight kennel all night and he came out and he was wagging and he was happy and he was trying to get her to play fetch. And she got to go through the whole physical exam and all sorts of things. And he had a little sticky note with him that just said, this is Marley. He's good with people. He's good with dogs. He's got a ton of energy. We love him very much, you know? Um, and drop off note as an orphanage, isn't it? it? Yeah. Yeah. Really heartbreaking. Um, and yeah, so I, I took him on a walk and I was like, nope, this is this is my dog. I sent a video to my boyfriend at the time and was like, I, I'm going to take this dog home. I think this might be our dog. And, um, you know, <laughs> here we are seven years later, I guess. Um, you must remember that really clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when you first saw him. Oh, God, he was actually, it was really funny. So Barley, if you follow, like if you check out our Instagram um, you'll see Barley is, he's a fluffy, very classic looking black and white border collie, but his tongue is like two inches too long for his head. <laughs> um, so when I first saw him, he had his tongue sticking out of the side of his mouth. And at this point he was, um, gosh, I'm not great with kilos, but he was probably close to 30 kilos. So big. That's quite very, big. very, very fat. <laughs> um, at, he now is closer to 20 kilos at his healthy weight um and so my first impression was like i don't think megan remembers what i'm looking for <laughs> this dog is like he's really fat he's like sitting there and his hair was all like matted and and his tongue was sticking out the side of his mouth and it was like it looked like he'd been electrocuted <laughs> and i was just like this isn't this isn't it but then you know immediately i was like well you know i've got a spare 20 minutes i'll take him out on i'll put him on a leash and we'll take him for a walk and you know then just immediately was like oh he's cool he's smart he's attentive he immediately was just like hey let's work together like engage with me do something do something do something like so pushy and like happy and curious about the world and i was like Oh yeah, he's got this spark. Like people who meet him, he's he's an odd dog, but he's he's very very shiny as a personality. Yeah. So you took him home straight away. Yeah, yeah, I took him home that day. He was in the shelter for less than twenty four hours. <laughs> um, and yeah, then we had maybe two years of living together where um. You know, I was working as a professional dog trainer, um, and then I was working as a freelance writer and web designer, and we traveled the world. And the whole time, I was kind of still working on trying to figure out how to get into the conservation dog world, um, but still just wasn't really sure if it was ever going to work out. Um, and long story somewhat shorter, I eventually did manage to get myself a job with a conservation detection dog organization, and Barley got hired alongside me. Um, he passed so all you of were the hired as a pet. 
Yeah, they hired, you know, it was mostly about me, but the fact that I came with a dog who could do the job was very helpful. And within, I don't know, six weeks of starting the job, Barley got recruited for a project. Um, that so, one. Yeah. What, were, what were the qualities there and how would they relate to the qualities that you saw in him as a potential pet? Yeah. So the biggest thing that this particular organization looks for is dogs that are absolutely bonkers about fetch. Okay. So, you know, and Barley is the sort of dog that every single time you open the back door, he runs out and grabs a stick and turns around and tries to put it at your feet. You know, every single time someone comes in the front door, he greets them with something in his mouth, whether it's a toy or gloves or socks. And then while you're sitting and watching TV, it is hours of him putting things in your lap and then sitting and staring. And you know, he's just, he's nuts. Why was that important to the organization? As a yeah. Work well. Yeah. So basically what the world of conservation dogs does, it's a detection dog. So think similar to a search and rescue dog, a, a bomb dog, a drug dog. Um, but instead of finding missing people or bombs or drugs, the dogs are trained to find things that are hard to find for biologists. So usually that's poop. Um, sometimes it's live animals. Sometimes it's endangered plants. You know, it can be a wide variety of things, but most of our job, our bread and butter is finding poop. And the reason we like dogs that are absolutely nuts for toys is that becomes their paycheck. So if you've got a dog who is that singularly focused on fetch, um, then it's much easier to, to teach them, hey, if you find this thing, you get your ball. And for them to be like, oh my God, great, got it. <laughs> um, and, you know, then with that, it's also easier to convince them not to chase bunnies or deer, or whatever, in exchange for their ball. So we're looking for dogs that ideally aren't very interested in tracing wildlife, but also the sorts of dogs where they're just so excited about their toys that it's worth it to them to ignore a squirrel in exchange for their ball. Right. And I'm guessing that the Collie as a breed is a really good one from that point of view. Absolutely. Yeah, they're one of the top breeds and breed mixes for the for the field our organization canine conservationists all five of our dogs are at least 50 percent border collie um and that is partially just kind of an accident there are other organizations that have lots of shepherds um lots of cattle dogs healers labs spaniels but even within that working breed you still have a dog like barley that'll have a really high enthusiasm for fetch yeah. will mark him out among even among collies exactly yeah even among border collies that i've met and at this point i've met a lot he's 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 unusual um i, I mean not atypical i guess but like he stands out a little bit and even compared to my younger border collie <laughs> so. so so tell me how it started then so they yeah. were him after you'd been with them six weeks or whatever yeah where did you start on the training front because I'm assuming that as a dog trainer you, you he was he must have been a good dog citizen yeah he already had his AKC uh, canine good citizen American Kennel Club, right? yeah American Kennel Club he had taken a nose work class at this point so we had done some practice learning how to sniff out essential oils as a sport and um so we had some idea, um, and part of why I got hired by this organization is that I had actually been training him to do the conservation dog stuff before I even got hired. So anyway, the way that you train a dog for this and the way that Barley was trained is you start out, um, generally when they're really young or really new, you actually start with them searching for their toy or searching for food. So they learn how to 
search an area and how to focus and how to read odor because odor can it moves briefly explain how odor might move yeah so you know you've got um airflow basically and that will move odor through a room or outdoors um you know it outdoors odor can move hundreds of meters um you know i think we've all heard about you know grizzly bears or brown bears can sniff out you know a carcass from three kilometers away or whatever it is and our dogs have olfactory systems that are similarly good unfortunately we're not generally looking for things that are you know the sort of thing you could smell from three miles away because they're just not big enough but um yeah so it moves and there's all sorts of complicated things that I, i will try not to get into partially because podcasts are just a really hard way to explain this but odor can get caught in eddies. It can get caught in the backside of trees. If there's uneven heating of surfaces, odor can kind of get sucked in and pulled around in all of these ways where the dogs are encountering the smell that they're looking for, but they're not finding the thing they're looking for. Now, I'm going to take mm-hmm. a guess here that if you've got a really smart dog who really knows what they're looking for, these kinds of oddities around odour behaviour that might come from wind or from hot Mm -hmm. air or cold air or whatever, I'm guessing they make it more interesting for a smart dog. Yes. Yeah, I find both of my Border Collies, if I do too much repetitive, boring training, their enthusiasm diminishes. They like the challenge, for sure. And the amazing thing about dogs is dogs come from wolves. Wolves know how to use their nose to find things. We're building on scaffolding that evolution has spent thousands and thousands of years perfecting. And then humans have come in with our breeds and with our selective breeding and further, you know, selected for that. And interestingly, you know, border collies have not been selected for scent, um, scent focus, but that is why people really like labs, for example. You know, labs can be quite visual, but if you think about finding a duck that's been shot out of the sky in dense underbrush, that's scent. And that's part of why labs are so popular for this. So we've got, you know, a species that is really good at this already. And then we've got breeds that are really focused on this as well through selective breeding. And then you find the right individual. And it's like, it can be pretty magical to watch a dog, we would call him a green dog, who has never really learned this before, and watch how fast they pick this up and how fast they can get very, very good at this. Um, so so you're talking yeah. natural talent of an individual, mm-hmm. you know, with all the breeding behind them, sure, and all those characteristics, but natural talent. So how did, how did this manifest in Bali in those early days? So, yeah, we did all of the food searches. We did all of these practices where he was searching just for his toy. You know, I'd put him in his crate, cover his crate with a blanket, go hide the toy and tell him to search. Um, and he would go find it. He loved, 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 loved that game. And then I started teaching him. And originally with him, I actually did this by pairing it. So I would take the odor that I wanted him to find and hide it with his ball. So then as he was learning, looking for his ball, searching for his ball, he also started to learn that this odor predicted where the ball was. As soon as he was like, oh, you're telling me all I have to do is run around and use my nose and use my brain to find this thing. And then I get to play with my ball. You know, we were, we were off to the races like he he was good. You know, <laughs> he, you know, he still had lots of stamina and problem solving and like skills to learn. But as soon as he understood the rules of the game, he was he was all in. You've also mentioned there problem solving skills. Mm-hmm. So you 
once he's into the game and you know that he understands what searching is and was doing that for you, where did you take that? Because, you know, I've, I've spoken to perhaps handlers whose dogs are trained on one thing. Yeah. You know, money or drugs or digital assets. There are all sorts of different things, but that's just one thing. And where I think you're doing something so interesting is you've got lots of different projects going on. Absolutely. And you say at the base of lots of them is is poop or droppings, Mm -hmm. but you're training your dogs and using them on different sorts of things. So what have you done with Bali and how did you start building the problem solving skills that you mentioned? Yeah. So the very first project Barley ever worked on was actually probably our most unusual. And that was um, finding zebra mussels on boats. So these are an invasive species of mussel that are from kind of Ukraine, former Soviet Union areas. Um, And they have wreaked havoc on the lakes in North America. Um, they are incredibly, incredibly invasive. And so these are mussels that hitch a ride from their mm-hmm. home territory and yeah. sneak all the way in on the bottom of boats. Exactly. And- yeah, they'll get sucked up in the bilge water or, you know, grow on the bottom of a boat if you just leave it out at anchor for a couple weeks or whatever. And then you're moving it to a new lake. And is this freshwater or seawater? Freshwater. Yes. Okay. Um, so for that particular project, he we were stationed at a boat launch at Yellowstone National Park. And every boat that came up, we ran the dog around the boat. And, you know, it was much more like drug dog style, like what you might see at a border where, you know, he's sniffing all of the orifices and cracks and crevices and whatever of the boat. Um, if he finds anything, he gets his ball. I also had a couple vials of zebra mussels kind of in my pocket so that every fifth boat every 10th boat i would just put one on the boat so he had something to find um because otherwise you know he kind of learns like okay if there's if he searches a thousand boats and there's nothing to find he'll stop searching um and get up on me so that's Um, about managing him actually isn't it judging how do you judge how often you will let him have a win or i'm assuming you miss things it depends on the dog you know so for him if if i start noticing that he's looking back at me a lot or sometimes he'll huff at me, kind of do this like, you know, um, or I see kind of an increase in what I would call kind of like frantic behavior. So he's like not focusing and he's really, really like all just moving his feet a lot more than necessary. Or if I see a big decrease in desire to search, those have all kind of told me that I've gone a little bit too long without giving him something. And, you know, to be honest, we think of it like their paycheck. So you want to reward the dog for finding things because you want that to be the most important part of their job, but also them searching about and telling you, Hey, there's nothing here is also correct. And also something that should be paid. So figuring out, um, you know, a lot of times I will give him a couple pieces of kibble when he clears about, and then he gets his ball if he finds something. And, you know, it's all about moderating that enthusiasm and it will be different for every single dog and can be different for that's different it, projects. That's Taylor and Barley thing then. That's a new yeah. thing. And, and when you work that closely, and I'm guessing by now for the zebra mussels, Barley must have been five or six. Yeah, he was five or six or so at that point. And he's been with you two or three years at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then so since then, we've also worked on um, one invasive plant um, project that was also with that other organization. And then now with canine conservationists, he's done two seasons of looking for birds and bats that have been killed by wind turbines. Um, so carcasses. Why would do that? 
Yeah. So for that here in the U.S., we, you know, as part of the Endangered Species Act and just as part of post-construction monitoring, wind farms will be required to check to see how many birds and bats they are killing with these turbines and whether or not that's in line with what they had predicted when they proposed the farm and built the farm and whether or not if they have if they have killed an animal that is protected under the Endangered Species Act. Um, and part of it is also then they can also use that information to determine algorithms to turn off the turbines during peak migration or during particularly high risk times to reduce fatalities as well. So part of it is like a boring government compliance thing. And part of it is genuinely, if we can figure out that, okay, usually, you know, the first weekend in September where the temperatures drop to X amount and the wind is below this, you know, that's when all the bats migrate. So if we can turn the turbines off at night that week, then we can reduce fatalities by X so amount. as much about data as mm-hmm. compliance there's a lot of different things going on yeah there. yeah exactly and uh, you know quite frankly for that job we were the hired guns who show up with the dogs and we find the things and we turn in the data sheets and that's about all we did um but um really really fun work i actually really enjoy you know dawn on the wind farm can be really beautiful and you just get to go out and spend every single day working with your dog and you know <laughs> you're fighting cattle gates and getting you know stepping on cacti and getting sunburned and getting rained on and all those you know all those things as well but it's it's a good steady job and i really really enjoy it and the dogs love it as well and, and with that, they're fighting. Are they retrieving as well in the same way a retriever would? Or are they indicating stopping and then you go and pick the bird up? Yeah, so they indicate and stop. So th- what both of my dogs are trained to do, um, so I also have a younger border collie named Niffler, but then Barley is, you know, he's my main guy. Um <laughs> When he finds the whatever it is that we're looking for, he's supposed to lie down, ideally with the target kind of in between his front paws and his face towards it. Um, you know, sometimes if we're on a really steep slope or really sharp grass or something like that, it won't quite look that pretty, but that's what it's supposed to be. You mentioned problem solving skills. What yeah. does that look like in the so, you know, and I think the the wind farms are a good place to start for this because the wind farms are a great example of about as simple as this job can be. Because you imagine on a wind farm, it's very windy, consistently in the same direction. So when the dogs are searching, we will search perpendicular to the wind. So the wind is kind of hitting my shoulder, the side of my face. Um, and the dogs do the same thing. They kind of orient themselves with their the side of their body to the wind. When they um, smell that bat or burn, basically all they have to do is take a 90 degree turn and go upwind until they don't smell it anymore. And then they backtrack and then they can pinpoint it from there. So it's very, very simple. (laughs) You know, it's really kind of like an L-shaped thing between finding the, between first encountering odor and finding the thing, in most cases on the wind farm. Now we can take um, a counter example. So we also have done um, carnivore um, scat monitoring work in California and Guatemala. The reason that scientists like finding scat (laughs) droppings is because you can determine what an animal has been eating based on those droppings. In some cases, you can determine how many they are, their reproductive status, whether or not they're related to each other. If you find the same individual in location A and B, um, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that you can do from that. And the cool thing is you can do that without ever stressing out the target animal. You don't have to capture them and radio collar them or take their blood or whatever, which is useful but can be expensive and risky. So anyway, um, in California and Guatemala, totally different scent pictures. So when we were in California, 
we were searching along beaches that kind of came up against bluffs. Um, and these bluffs had kind of erosion ravines going down them. So you can imagine, you know, the wind is kind of coming in from the ocean and hitting these bluffs and creating these huge swirling eddies. Um, and then there's also kind of wind that would gust down these gullies. So there were there were times where you could see Barley, you know, because he'll change his pace and his tail wag will change and he'll close his mouth and start, you know, sniffing harder. So you can tell like, okay, he's got something. So like, let's slow down. Let's give him space. Let's let him figure it out. Um, and there were times where we would spend like 10 minutes kind of spiraling around an area trying to help him resolve. And he was just like going in circles. Like he could find the odor and he was in he was in odor. And there was one actually where, you know, after about maybe five or 10 minutes, we were like, all right, you know what? We're not going to find this. Like, let's just, let's just go. It might be, we figured it was on top of one of the bluffs and the odor was coming down and it wasn't safe for us to figure out how to get up and go find it. So we go out and we finish the search. And then on our way back, you know, we just doubled back and in that sa exact same area, he does the same thing. And then that time he found it and it was actually a little turd like the size of my thumbnail in the intertidal zone so it was actually we ended up not collecting it for genetic analysis because it was too sun and water damaged um but that odor had actually been blowing from the intertidal zone over into the bluffs and getting sucked up these gullies so it looked like oh. the odor was coming down so that's a long story to just kind of show like how complicated it can be and because we can't see wind we can't see odor. Sometimes it can be really hard to tell exactly what you need to do to assist the dog and use your because big. I guess body is working in a fifth dimension that you don't have. Mm -hmm. yes. yes, exactly. It looks like magic sometimes. On the podcast, some a couple of years ago, actually, um, I spoke to somebody who used to who does run a pack of bloodhounds, and he commented that when the bloodhounds are going over the prow of a hill, that scent will tumble down the hill and you can watch that because the bloodhounds will start descending on their way down after the scent and yeah. in that way as a person you know he said you you become aware of how the scent rolls mm -hmm. it rolls downhill it, it it goes over the top and and you see it through the bloodhounds tracking exactly so, yes um, so i'm guessing is stuff like the wind turbine and the wind farm work, is that good training grounds for younger dogs? Yeah, that's where we start most of our young novice dogs. It's a really good way to get them a ton of practice and um, kind of make sure that they like the job. It's a, generally a pretty safe environment as well. There's not a ton of wildlife. Um, the downside or maybe the one of the risks is if you hypothetically spent five seasons on a wind farm and then tried to move on to something more complicated, that can be a really tough transition for the dogs. Um, if they really are used to this being my role, this is my job, these are the rules, this is how it works. And then all of a sudden you start presenting them with these odor pictures that are so much more complicated. It can be difficult to adjust. So we do like to try to get our dogs, give them more experience and get them off the wind farm quickly or like give them a diversity of experience. It's fine for an experienced dog to go back to the wind farm, but make sure that they understand that it's not just, it's not always an L-shaped <laughs> situation. You talk there about, about it being a safe environment. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I've noticed when, because I follow you on Instagram, Kayla, is 
that there's a lot of your focus that basically goes into the welfare of the dog, isn't there? Yeah. And looking after Barley. And I know Barley's had a bit of dental work last week. Hope he's feeling yeah, better. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's he's fine. <laughs> he's one tooth smaller, but, but I know that he's had tick-borne diseases, and you know, there's a lot out there, isn't there? Particularly yeah. when you're doing some of your overseas work, perhaps where you've got different biodiversity, different bugs different germs yeah. all of that thing. oh absolutely yeah how do you deal with that yeah it's I mean it's something we're we're constantly assessing reassessing talking to veterinarians talking to um you know infectious disease experts um because yeah you know we we're, we work all around the world hypothetically most of our work so far has been in the U.S. and Latin America but um, yeah, Barley picked up a disease, um, two tick-borne diseases, actually, when we were in Guatemala. And that was despite wearing a permethrin-treated vest and having an oral tick and flea um, preventative and every day me pulling dozens and dozens of ticks off him at every point that I could along, um, you know, every water break, every every evening. Um, it, it, there's no way to get risks to zero. Um, one of the other things I did when we were in Guatemala is actually purchased anti-venom from a local veterinarian and I learned how to administer that and I had it in my pack. So if we were to encounter a snake and he were to step on a snake when we were 18 hours from the nearest emergency vet, at least I could get a vial of anti-venom on board um, before, you know, as we were en route to the actual experts. Um, and that is, that's really important to us. You know, our dogs are family. Um, they sleep in my bed. Like I love them so much. And no matter what happens with this job, they would be with me forever. And they're also quite frankly, we can't do our jobs without them. I can't pay rent if my dogs can't work. So there is also a little bit of like, you know, like I, I, I got to make sure that they are ready to go back to work tomorrow. And that's, so that's, it's, it's, it's immensely important to us on a ton of different levels. Yeah. <laughs> as well Kelly you're keeping Barley's motivation high aren't you because that's part of it as well so if it's not fun I mean you can't make a dog sniff can you nope nope yeah there's no search it's not gonna search there's really nothing you can do about it yeah so they've got to feel comfortable they've got to feel happy they've got to feel confident you know a huge part of early training and ongoing training is just making them feel like they are the most invincible athletic smart beautiful boys in the whole world. And of course they are, but also a huge part of it is just, you know, making sure that they know that they've got it and, and teaching them that I can't necessarily help. You have to know how to do this and you have to be ready to lead me and show me because, you know, in training, I might know where the samples are <laughs> because I put them there. But once we're out and we're charging scientists hundreds of dollars a day of hard-earned grant money, to do this work and we're trying to meet these huge important conservation goals we don't want to be wasting anyone's money and the dogs need to know that hey if i smell something i need to stick with it and tell my people about it and then we can get those samples um <laughs> you know it's not quite as high consequence as a mind detection dog where if they miss people can and will die but we do really need them to know that hey, you've got this. You are the most important part of this team right now. None of us would be here doing this project if it wasn't for the dogs. The humans are a lot more replaceable. <laughs> <laughs> 
and yet you're going to read barley better than any other person can anyone work barley apart from you or is yeah yeah he's actually gone into the field with my co-founder rachel before he did um, her first ever season as a detection dog handler he did with her which is a model we really like putting a really experienced dog with a less experienced person um and that will probably be about the only time so we'll use him for training, you know, and like teaching our students, they might get to work with him. Um, and my younger dog, Niffler, is going to actually also go and work with Rachel this coming summer. Um, and I get to keep Barley. I, I want him. Now, I was going to ask you about that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Niffler, is, is that Harry Potter inspired? It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Nifflers are creatures that show up. And I think their their first appearance is in the fourth book. They're, uh, they sniff up. They, like, they, they find shiny things, don't they? Yeah. Gold and <laughs> shiny things. And, um, you know, they're, they're little search creatures. So it was fitting. Um, Lovely name. When you talk about um, different training techniques and perhaps approaches being different in different um, countries, one of the things that I have enjoyed hugely when I listen to your podcasts and, and when I follow you on social media is you seem to me to live in a world of positive reinforcement. And that's something that it's very much how everyone I've spoken to in the UK so far um, mm-hmm. is, is very much a fan of. But that's not universal, is it? Why do you get positive reinforcement? It's, I mean, it's just how I started as a dog trainer, you know, if we're being really honest about it. I I never saw why I would want to use pain or fear as part of training. And, you know, I'm not perfect. I lose my temper just like everyone else. Um, There are times where my dogs do something that scares me and I yell at them or I yank on the leash or whatever, but it's never something that so far I haven't intentionally, I have intentionally put into a training plan. Our dogs are so privileged in conservation in where they get to go and what they get to do. My dogs got to search in the Tikal National Park of Guatemala where dogs are absolutely not allowed. Niffler saw a jaguar while we were there. Wow. If there was any doubt in my mind that he might try to chase an animal, I don't think he should be doing this job because we have so much privilege and so much special permission and VIP, whatever. There shouldn't, anyway. So, yeah, 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 I'm pretty positive reinforcement and there's a lot of reasons for it. And even when I think about situations where I might consider a different training plan, I'm not really sure that it's actually where I would go. So tell me what is coming up next, because Bali's been to Guatemala, he's been all over mm-hmm. the US, he's had a, having a very rich work experience, yes. isn't he? What, yeah. what is coming up next? Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm in my first year of a PhD program at this point, um, which thank goodness for my lovely co-founders, Rachel and Heather, they deserve huge shout outs. Um, they are really helping keep canine conservationists afloat while I have to pull back, obviously on my time commitment. But so I'm getting this PhD in wildlife biology at Oregon State University. And um, as part of that, I obviously, you know, I was like, well, obviously I'm going to be using and studying conservation detection dogs as part of this. Um, So Barley and I, this coming summer, um, May, June, July, we'll be going up to the Prince of Wales Island um, in Southeast Alaska. And we will be searching for wolf poop um, as part of a project where we're looking at island size, and marine influence on terrestrial ecosystems. So these wolves may be eating seals, maybe eating sea otters. Um, and we're kind of looking at 
what are the factors that influence all of those sorts of things? And Barley will be my main working dog for that. We're going to be staying in my van that I've been living in on and off, mostly on for the last couple of years and um, taking a little gillnet boat between all of these islands. It's going to be so cool. <laughs> um, that sounds yeah. an amazing summer. And yeah. how will how will you prepare the way for Barley with that? With will Wolf Scat be an easy jump for him? Yeah. Um Wolf Scat is an interesting one. Um I am going to be careful with how we introduce a wolf scat in particular because it is another canid. They're technically the same species. So when Barley's searching for ocelot scat or jaguar scat, he is interested, um, but he's more interested because he gets his ball okay. versus when he encounters canid scat, he can read the hormonal and chemical communication that is inherent in that scat in a way that can be really tricky. From what I've heard, I've never done wolf scat before. So I actually am going to spend a week in Missoula, Montana with Dr. Megan Parker, who is a huge expert on scat dogs and canine olfactory communication. And she's done a ton of wolf work for the first week or so of Barley's training, because I want to be really careful about how he gets introduced to wolf there. And is that, to take an analogy, is that to avoid him having what a personal response rather than yeah. a Yes, exactly. So there are just lots and lots of stories of conservation dogs peeing on wolf scats, being scared of wolf scats, um, just having really big emotional responses to wolf, even yeah. if those dogs are really experienced with other species. So they're, like, it's just a little different. And then I do want to say, so my PhD, I'm very lucky. My advisor is really supportive. I'm actually going to be doing two projects. Um so um, they're both focusing on similar questions as far as the diet and connectivity and movement of these large carnivores. But the other project is going to be studying pumas in El Salvador. Pumas were claimed to be extinct in El Salvador, or declared extinct. Um, and the last puma that had been found in El Salvador was in 1942. So a long time ago. Wow. And then in 2018, so about five years ago as we're recording, Fundacion Naturaleza El Salvador put out camera traps and got images of at least two pumas in what's called the Rio Sapo Basin, um, which is just a river basin kind of up near the Honduran border, border up in the mountains. Um, and now the question is, how many do we have? What are they eating? What are they doing? Where are they moving? Where do they come from? You know, we have, you know, we've got these pictures that show that they're not extinct. And that's kind of all we know. So thank you so much for talking to me. Now, have I failed to ask you anything? I always have to ask that because uh, I've got all carried away as, as we're chatting. Oh, gosh. I know. I just want to do an eight-parter on Barley. <laughs> He's a, a horrible trash goblin. We should say all the worst things about Barley. Too. He's a trash goblin. That's <laughs> such an American expression. Does that mean he reads the garbage? He reads the garbage. Yes. He's a, <laughs> he's a dumpster diver. He, um, yeah, he, he is... Absolutely untrustworthy around any sort of semi-edible anything. He uses all of the problem-solving and tenacity and creativity that I have taught him for evil when he is unattended. Um, yeah, all those problem-solving skills we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it really bites us in the butt. Um, 
I don't, yeah, he's he's funny. He, you know, it, it is really interesting to watch. There, There's a lot about him that reminds me of like Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. I don't know if that's as popular uh, in the UK as it is here, but um, he can be really socially awkward. <laughs> um, when like my cousin's dogs at Christmas, um, one of them had a bone and didn't want Barley to come approach. And Barley just straight up didn't notice that that dog was growling at him. It's not that he ignores that other dog. He just isn't very socially savvy with other dogs. Um, he's a genius in so many ways, but then is really missing some other screws. Something that I have noticed over the last three years of interviewing working dogs is it's incredibly commonly the case that dogs that are exceptional at their jobs haven't worked out as pets. Sounds like that might be so for Barley. Absolutely, yes. Barley, it's so funny. He's my dream dog. He's my he's my ride or die. I he is my soulmate. I love this dog, two bits. Even when he has eaten all of the trash, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and every dog sitter I have ever had has been very grateful to give him back to me. Kayla, thank you. Yes. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, getting a bit of a deep dive into the conservation detection work that goes on in the states and Latin America. You can find more information about Kayla and the team at canineconservationists.org. And I should also mention that they do an online 18-week course on canine conservation um, and a mentoring scheme. So if you're interested in training your own dog, wherever you are in the world, you can do that under the supervision of the Canine Conservationists team. Just go and have a look at their website. I will be back in a few weeks time with a trio of detection dogs and their talented owner and handler. They work in the UK in the commercial property sector. These three detection dogs work as surveyors, helping to identify the presence of some of the world's most invasive plants. These are plants from seismic areas in the world whose roots can disrupt concrete foundations and buckle railway lines. That's in our next episode, so do give us a follow if you're listening to this as a podcast or keep checking back for more dogs with amazing jobs. As always, I love to hear from people. So if you're interested in coming on the show and talking about your working dog, or perhaps you know someone else who works his or her or their dog and would like to come on the show, please get in touch. Team at shineradio.uk. Details in the show notes. Until next time. Dogs with Jobs, presented by Kate Fairweather and produced with John Wellsman. Made by volunteers in Petersfield, this is Shine Radio. I just like being in a little family. Um, I love the community spirit. I like coming out to events like this. This is my first event with Shine. I'm honing in on my editing skills right now. I've been allowed free reign of the controls this weekend. And yeah, just learning loads of new skills, being able to broadcast, interview. It's really good. Petersfield's Shine Radio. You make it shine. Call Petersfield 555 500 or email team at shineradio.uk.